0: Bad boy, baby. Yeah. Good morning. Yeah. B-I-G-2. B-I-G-2. I'm on again. The weak of the strong. Who got it going on? You're dead wrong. You're dead wrong. <laughs> on. The weak we of the strong. Who got it, got it going on? You're dead wrong. you lights and Fine. take notes. While I take totes of the marijuana smoke. Throw you in a choke. One evening, many years ago, I was having Shabbat dinner with my ex-girlfriend and her parents. Her father was very well-educated. He had gotten his Ph.D. in physics from Berkeley, spoke at least five languages, and called Princeton his home. The topic of biblical Israel came up during the conversation, and someone at the table mentioned the phrase, the land of milk and honey the land of milk and honey. We've all heard this intoxicating phrase, and we know exactly what it means. Or do we? I must have been trying to impress her father because I thought it would make me look thoughtful and witty to pose the following question. I've always wondered why they called it the land of milk and honey, I said to him. How did people get honey from beehives so easily at that time? Didn't they get stung by bees whenever they tried? I was expecting the father to be very intrigued by my question and to spend time contemplating with me how ancient tribes like the Hebrews were able to stalk a beehive and find their way to the sweet nectar without thousands of bees taking note and swarming upon them. I figured that any attempt to conquer a bee's nest would have been so traumatic to the conquerors that, even if they had gotten some nice honey out of it, they would never have dared to so venerate this honey thereafter by including it in the title of their new country. That would be like calling the desert the land of prickly pears or something. Anyway, the father was unimpressed. He gave a smile and more or less dismissed my question with the wave of the hand. That's not the honey they were referring to in the Torah, he said. It wasn't the honey from bees. It was the honey from dates. The honey from dates? What was the old man talking about? But then he explained, A sweet, honey-like nectar oozes out from the date fruit, at practically the slightest touch when they are ripe and heavy and ready to fall off the tree, if they have not fallen off already. When the Hebrews said the land of milk and honey, they meant date honey, not bumblebee honey. At this point in my life, I hadn't spent more than a couple of weeks in Israel, So I didn't fully buy the old man's story. But once I moved to Israel and spent some time in the desert, the truth of his statement could not be denied. Date trees are everywhere in Israel. Dates are everywhere. There are millions and millions of these dates all around, and each one is bursting and oozing with nectar, with honey. And you don't need to go to any work or risk being stung or subject your face to permanent contortion by trying to procure this honey. you can just pick up these dates off the ground and bite into them and voila, you've got honey. Date honey, that is. The got the the Woo. Because Woo. you know I love it young, fresh and green with no hand between know what I mean. You're dead to The Shrift, Life Tip 30, Ezekiel 20. You're Having sex with them camels, mammals, and rabbits But I don't get into that I kick a habit I just beat you to death with weapons And eat you to flesh Since then, I've brought up this question to other Americans And I uniformly received the same answer What? They're not talking about the honey from bees? It's date honey? Yes, I calmly answer It's date honey I spent my entire life believing that the honey in the land of milk and honey was bee honey, the golden yellow viscous liquid which cascades out of a glass jar often with the aid of a honeycomb. Why did I, and why do millions of Americans, think such a ridiculous thought? After all, maybe my original question to my ex-girlfriend's father wasn't so stupid after all. My initial assumption was sound. No culture would so acclaim and celebrate a substance whose procurement would result in singular or even collective trauma. In this sense, I was intelligent. But I should have been ready with a follow-up thought to my initial skepticism. I should have thought, no, it can't be. It can't be this honey. The mental barrier in this case was my environment, the Northeastern United States. This honey was the only type of honey I had ever known. This is the only honey which exists in this part of the world. We have no palm trees up there. When I heard the word honey, I therefore immediately assumed bumblebee honey. Yet, for the ancient Hebrews, it would have been the exact opposite. For them, honey was obviously date honey. Date honey was everywhere in the Middle East, after all. But sadly, I never allowed myself to think through other possibilities. I just heard the word honey and jumped to an automatized conclusion as to what honey meant. And this conclusion, though automatized, was utterly false, was dead wrong. When a Jewish state in Palestine was first suggested, the idea was met with ridicule. Just as I had jumped conclusions as to what honey meant, European intellectuals in the late 19th century also groped at automatized conclusions as to what Jews were capable of. Today, we know that Jews are capable of far more than being rabbis, lawyers, peddlers, or moneylenders. In Israel, you find out pretty quickly that Jews are just as qualified to work in any occupation as any other nationality or ethnicity, perhaps with the exception of Eskimo igloo builders. In Israel, there are Jewish bus drivers, farmers, spies, generals, bouncers, electricians, and soccer players. Today, this state of affairs seems obvious and self-evident, but it absolutely wasn't obvious in 1896 when Theodor Herzl published one of the most important political treatises ever written, The Jewish State, Der Judenstaat. In The Jewish State, Hetzel expounded his radical idea that the Jews of Europe should move to Palestine or Argentina and found their own nation, a state in which Jews would be the majority and determine their own political destiny. For hundreds of years, Jewish existence had been confined to the ghetto, walled in sections of European cities. Jews were literally forbidden to move beyond the ghetto walls. Accordingly, Jewish ghettos were overcrowded, chaotic, and rambunctious. This state of affairs can be properly witnessed in the old Jewish cemetery in Prague, where thousands of graves are built on top of each other because the Jews had no hope of acquiring more land to build a new cemetery. In the ghetto, Jews were only permitted to work in specific professions. They could be rabbis, moneylenders, peddlers. What they certainly could not be were farmers, They had no land after all, nor could they be soldiers or judges or princes or politicians. Even if the image of the ghetto Jew as frail and hunched over was only a stereotype, one can understand how a Jew's body might have taken on this shape after enough years in this ghettoized existence. Because Jews had been forced to live this confined reality for so many centuries, it became difficult to imagine them in any other roles. Just as I could not perceive honey as anything beyond the creation of a bumblebee, Europeans could not imagine Jews picking crops in the fields or working in coal factories or building steel bridges. These preconceptions about Jews were so strong that Theodor Herzl had to persuade his fellow Jews that they were capable of professions beyond the white collar. Herzl thus wrote in The Jewish State, quote, There are more mistaken notions abroad concerning Jews than concerning any other people, and we have become so depressed and discouraged by our historic sufferings that we ourselves repeat and believe these mistakes. One of these is that we have an immoderate love of business, Here, Herzl calmly explains that Jews do not love business and trade nearly as much as they assume they do. Herzl then tackles the notion that Jews cannot engage in manual labor. He writes to his German Jewish audience that, quote, in the Eastern countries of Europe, there are great numbers of Jews who are not traders and who are not afraid of hard work either. Unquote. Finally, Herzl clarifies that the Jewish peddlers and traders can be easily converted into laborers and farmers once they reach the new Jewish state, as both groups require similar skill sets. The Jewish state of Israel now has enough history behind it to know that Herzl was correct. All of these beliefs that Jews were not fit to work in certain professions had only taken root because, to quote Herzl, we have become so depressed and discouraged by our historic sufferings that we ourselves repeat and believe the mistaken notions as to what Jews are capable of. In short, the obvious cannot be seen because an unfortunate blind spot was accepted as reality. This past weekend, I stayed with a friend in Eilat, Israel, for the Shabbat weekend. I hadn't seen her in a few years, and she had changed quite a bit since the time we last met. In short, she is struggling right now, largely due to a chronic pain condition she is suffering from, partially because she hates her job as an elementary school teacher, and partially due to as will soon become apparent, clinical depression. I found out pretty fast down in lot that her new favorite word had become no. No. I came down to Elot with all of my life tips and she truly did not want to hear any of them. She said she had been unable to sleep, so I suggested that she turn her phone off on Shabbat. No, it won't help. I noticed that she only used vegetable oil instead of olive oil for cooking. I asked her if I could give her a nutrition tip. Her response? No. I don't want to hear it. She complained that she never exercised anymore. I offered to teach her yoga. No. I would have given her the life tip for this episode as well, that we should pause before immediately saying, no, it won't work, or no, it can't be that way, and consider that we have more possibilities than we realize. But I knew that her response to this, too, would be, no. We don't. I would be concerned that she might listen to this podcast and hear me talking about her. But if she wouldn't take my life tips in person, you can be sure that she's not going to endeavor to glean them through the medium of an overly intellectualized podcast. Woe to the man who has become the fastest drawl in the West with the word no. The haftarah for the Parsha of Kiddushim, comes from chapter 20 of the book of Ezekiel. In this chapter, Ezekiel describes Israel with the legendary epithet, the land of milk and honey. I now know of which kind of honey Ezekiel spoke. But earlier in my life, if you had asked me whether Ezekiel might have meant a different honey than bee honey, what would my unthinking and automatic answer have been? No. No way. We now know that the Jews are capable of governing their own country in the Middle East, and that the ghetto or the bourse are not necessarily their natural habitat. But 100 years ago, if you had asked a random Jew on Potsdamer Platz whether the Jews could run their own state anywhere, let alone in the desert, he would have answered no so fast that the stock ticker on the board behind him would scarcely have had time to change. I'm not saying that no is never the appropriate answer. Usually, no is a perfectly acceptable and profoundly reasonable response to a proposal. I'm merely saying that no should not become your automatic answer. Give yourself time to say no. Even delaying just a second, or perhaps a breath, can open up enough space to perceive other possibilities and alternative options. When I moved to Israel several years ago, I was shocked to see how many families baked their own bread, their own challah, for Shabbat dinner. I always assumed that bread could only be made by professional bakers and bakeries, or by machines and factories, and that one would need to join some cult-like guild to learn the dark magic of bread baking. I looked on in wonder as homemade challah would appear on the Shabbat dinner table, and I gazed on covetously at my hosts like they were wizards of the pharaoh. Put another way, for my entire life, my answer to the question of whether I could bake my own bread had always been a thoughtless, automatized, and comforting no. Now, however, I know better. I know that I am just as capable of baking my own challah as some old apron safta with 11 grandchildren. But what about croissants and French baguettes and Israeli pita bread? Can I really bake those too on my own? Nah, I doubt it. Come on. We get dead Go wrong.